Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello. Today on the show, we've got some strategies for getting over yourself. Joseph Goldstein is a fan favorite on this show. He's also a personal favorite of mine, given that he's been my meditation teacher for more than a decade. Every year, Joseph does a three-month retreat by himself at his home in Massachusetts. This year, he emerged with a bunch of thoughts on what are called the three proliferating tendencies, or three propunchas, to use the ancient Pali term. These are three ways in which we perpetuate a sense of self, not a healthy sense of self, but an unhealthy sense of self, like the Beatles sang about in that song, I, Me, Mine. As Joseph has explained to me and to many others before, you can think about the process of going deeper in meditation as a process of lightening up or getting less self-centered. You're about to get a master class in doing just that. For the uninitiated, Joseph is one of the co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society, in Barrie, Massachusetts. He was working at that time alongside two other meditation titans, Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield. Since IMS was founded, thousands of people from around the world have come through to learn about mindfulness from many, many leaders in the field. I, in fact, just got back from a little retreat there myself. Joseph has been a teacher there since the place was founded in the 1970s, and he continues to uh, be the resident guiding teacher. He's also a founding teacher of our companion meditation app. He created our flagship courses teaching the basics of meditation as well as some advanced courses on compassion and stress. So if you want to learn directly from Joseph and maybe even put into practice some of the insights he shares in this very interview, you can download the 10% Happier app today wherever you get your apps. Okay, here we go now with Joseph Goldstein. Hello, Joseph. (laughs) Hi, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming back on the show. I haven't, uh, luckily, nothing I've done in the last, uh, whatever, 12 months since you've been on the show has sufficiently alienated you to that you've uh, banned <laughs> me for life. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure to be here, Dan. So I had the pleasure of watching some talks that you had given recently where you were talking about what are known as the three proliferating factors. I think I have that right. Am I using the terminology correctly? Yeah, proliferating tendencies. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that? And then what are they? Okay. So first, just out of general interest, I just want to mention the Pali word for that proliferating tendency. Pali is the language, you know, of the ancient Buddhist texts, because it's it's one of those terms that comes up frequently, even in our modern discourse on the teachings. So just to familiarize, you know, our listeners to that term, it's papancha. And I like the Pali because it, it sort of is onomatopoeia. It sort of sounds like what it is, papancha. You know, it's just the mind proliferating and elaborating from the bare elements of our experience, from the building blocks of our experience. We then build whole worlds, you know, and then get enmeshed in one way or another in those worlds. And so there are three main tendencies which lead us in that direction. And it's very helpful to become aware of them, to distinguish between them, 
and to learn how to free ourselves from them. If not completely, at least to have more wisdom in relating to them when we see them arising. So that's basically what Papancho, or this proliferating tendencies of mind, just, it expands in quite a powerful way, just the complexity of our lives, particularly with regard to how suffering is created and how we can uh, become a little more free. When I've used the word historically, I must be using the Sanskrit version because I have often said prapancha. It sounds like that difference between Pali and Sanskrit, which are very close. I love the term prapancha or papancha, however you want to pronounce it or spell it. And I've heard it translated as the imperialistic tendency of mind in, the, in that you, you, you take a data point from the present moment, like you stub your toe and you colonize the future with this whole like, <laughs> I, why am I always the guy who stubs his toe? You know, this is going to hurt forever. Um, and what you're talking about here are these three sort of runaway trains of Prapancha that are really three of the main contributors to how we suffer as humans. Yeah, I liked your description of them. We need to stop being imperialists in our own minds <laughs> to, to curb those tendencies. So let's go through the tendencies. Yeah, yeah. Should we take them one at a time? The first one is craving. Maybe before we do that, just set the larger framework behind it all. It's expressed in one very succinct teaching of the Buddha's which he actually gave to his son, Rahula. So it's, it has a kind of touching aspect to it that the Buddha is leading his own son, you know, on this path of liberation. And there's a whole story behind it where the Buddha is telling him, everything should be seen with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So not mine, not I, not myself. Everything should be seen in that light. And so the papans, the three proliferating tendencies, are connected to the sense of mine or belonging to me or to I am, I am this or that, or to the view of self. So that those that's the underlying framework for understanding the three proliferating tendencies. Not mine, not I, not myself. So the not mine is connected to craving, taking things to belong to me. So there are a million examples of this. We do it all the time. So I'll just give one example from a meditative practice. I might begin to see the freeing aspect of it. You know, if we're doing walking meditation, for example, and we're being pretty mindful of the movement and the touch, it would be quite common to have, one might almost say, a subliminal or a very faint overlay of a sense of leg. You know, we're walking leg or foot. So even if we're feeling the sensations of the movement and the touch, it's very commonly a very quiet overlay would be that sense of, oh, leg, foot, 
But actually, we don't feel the foot. We don't feel the leg. There's no sensation called leg. <laughs> right? we're, we're feeling uh, hardness, you know, when we're touching the ground or maybe, you know, movement. So leg is the concept. Once we already have that concept leg, very commonly, we would think of it as my leg. So right there, we're getting involved in, this belongs to me, this is mine. And when it's mine, we have all kinds of wantings or cravings about it. I want whatever's mine to be this way or that way, or not to change, or all kinds of things come out of that belief that things belong to me. So this is a very simple example just in walking, but just imagine how many times this plays out in one's life. What's wrong with claiming my own leg as mine? <laughs> what's, what's wrong with it is that it's not. <laughs> You're living in delusion. <laughs> Once again, Dan. <laughs> 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 so, so, for example, if we're really deeply embedded in that both view and sense of it being mine, then there are a couple of things. One is we're going to suffer when things happen to it that we don't want it to happen. Let's leave the example of the leg, but we could just take the whole body, you know, taking the body to be mine, to belonging to me. Well, the more attached we are to that view, how do we feel as the body ages, as it gets sick, as it dies? That's going to create a lot of suffering. Whereas if we see the body, you know, just the physical elements which make up the body as being just an aspect of nature. It's non-personal. It's just these physical elements in you know certain configuration fulfilling their functions, subject to the laws of impermanence and change. When we see it in that way, where we're not claiming it to be mine, <laughs> then as it goes through the inevitable changes, this is not like it happens to some people and not to others, right? All of our bodies go through this process, then we're really at ease. We're in harmony with nature rather than creating a papancha, creating a mental proliferation, which adds to the basic experience of what's happening, this idea, this is mine. And you can see that when that's strong, then it leads to a lot of craving of how we would like the body to be. And just how much of our society is built on advertising things that appeal to our sense of what we would like our bodies to be like. (laughs) Because we take it to be me. We take them to be self. We take it to be mine. So it has a lot of consequences, you know, as we play out our lives. So craving is one of these papancha slash prapancha 
Let's just say papancha. Let's use the poly. Okay, let's just do what Joseph says as usual. Um, <laughs> so craving Always. is... <laughs> there's no craving in that. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's craving. The next is conceit. Yeah. So this is really interesting. First, it's to understand that in the Buddhist terminology, conceit means something a little different than our usual understanding of what it means in English. Because in English, generally, we use that word to mean a very inflated sense of oneself. So one is conceited. The Pali word for conceit is mana, M-A-N-A. So in this Buddhist usage of that word, and how it's been translated in English as conceit, is much broader. Most basically... It refers to this deeply, deeply felt sense of I am. It's just the I amness, which manifests in a few different ways. It can manifest I am in comparison to other people. So I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm equal to, just some comparing function is all considered conceit. Because even when it's in a negative way, you know, oh, I'm not as good as that person, that's still revolving around that I am sense. So that's one way the conceit manifests in comparing. And it would be interesting to notice not only the obvious times when that's happening, you know, where it's really very very clear in our minds. But my sense is that it happens a lot, often under the radar. And it might be interesting just to notice when we're interacting with people, particularly people maybe that we're, you know, don't know that well, or perhaps are meeting for the first time, just to see if there's any undercurrent in that meeting of comparing maybe comparing personality or comparing intelligence or comparing looks or whatever, you know, kind of going on in the background that I think is often unnoticed, but still exerting its influence on our minds. So that's one aspect of conceit, just this comparing. And the other aspect is the I am over time. So when we're thinking of how I was in the past or how I am in the future, in the present, or how I will be in the future, right? So that that also is an expression of conceit. So it's pretty pervasive. And it's a contraction. You know, as soon as we become identified with that proliferation in the mind, the I aming, it's not a pleasant state. It's not a quality of happiness. It just feels like this contraction of our being. I think there are, there are many people listening to the show who you know, are familiar with basic Buddhist concepts who will completely understand what you're talking about. But there may be others who are sort of new to this and are thinking, what is this guy talking about? What do you mean I, I am is a cause <laughs> of pain? I, of course I am. I look in the mirror and I see uh, me. So well, why is that a problem? So first, in order to 
kind of come to some fuller understanding of all this, I think it's helpful to talk about the basic building blocks of our experience, because then the proliferation will become more apparent. So what are the basic building blocks of how we experience ourselves in the world? Well, it's quite amazing because it comes down to some very simple things. And the Buddha talked about this. He, he gave one discourse, which he called the all. So he described the all, which is everything, in six phrases. So just that's pretty amazing. <laughs> okay, so what is the all? What is the all? The eye, invisible objects, the ear and sound, the nose and smell, the tongue and taste, the body and sensations, and the mind and mind objects, thoughts, emotions, images. So they're just these six things, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and objects of mind. And the Buddha challenged people, does anybody experience anything outside of these six things. So I find this quite amazing, you know, because very often we think our lives are so complicated and, you know, there's such confusion. <laughs> but really, all that's ever happening is one of these six things. Right? So in some way, I see it as like our lives, everybody's lives. It's like a six-piece chamber orchestra that's playing the music of our lives. So what makes the music either harmonious and beautiful or discordant are not the first five, you know, the sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch. There's no problem in any of them. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, but that's all fine. The complexity and the confusion and the suffering comes in our mental response to these six things, how we're relating to them. And the Buddha pointed out those ways of relating that cause suffering. And those ways of relating to these six very simple things in ways that create peace, create happiness for us. So the point in talking about I am, the conceit I am, is an important doorway into freeing ourselves from a lot of suffering. So I, I just want to read something. Grasping and cherishing that which does not exist is the center of all our suffering. So we have created this sense of self which is the last of the three papancha, the view of self. Right? We've created this view of self and made it into something substantial in our view. And then we cherish it and we hold on to it and we do all kinds of things. But as it says, we're grasping at cherishing that which does not exist. Because all that really exists are those six things of sight, smells, taste, you know, sensation, and different mind objects. 
Are we getting clearer or more confused? Let me just ask a question. Let me just channel, you know, the the the, the channel yourself. Yeah, the me of your um, <laughs> or just to do a service to some listeners who may yeah, not yeah. be new, newer to this. Yes. Okay, so if it's a six-piece chamber orchestra and my sense of myself is, this is a beautiful phrase from my friend and colleague, the Buddhist teacher, Jay Michelson, if my sense of self is born in that blur of these six aspects of the all and to claim any of it as mine is... As an, to quote another Buddhist teacher who I first heard of through you, if to claim any of it as mine is a misappropriation of public property and causes <laughs> suffering, where does that leave me? I mean, because I still, you know, you need to function in the world as me. Yes. <laughs> okay. I think before addressing that specifically, and you may have to remind me again of the question after I finish this little digression. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, I'm getting old, then. <laughs> uh, I think I'd just like to spend, you know, a minute or two talking about the view of self or what self means. Because everything we've been talking about really rests on that understanding or misunderstanding. So the example I like to give in terms of explaining what non-self means. And this, this kind of understanding of non-self is absolutely central to the Buddha's teaching uh, of liberation, of freedom, you know, of greater happiness. So it's a really, it's an essential point to begin to explore. It's not that easy to understand because it's counterintuitive. You know, just as you said, what do you mean there's no self? Of course, you know, here I am, and I, I need that to navigate in the world. So the example that I'd like to give, especially in these last couple of years, is that of a river. You know, so we all know what a river is, and it's, you know, this body of flowing water. And there are lots of rivers, and we give the rivers different names. But is there anything that is a river separate from, or different than, or independent of the flowing water. No, river is simply a designation. R river is a designation for that process of water flowing in a particular channel. So river is not a thing in itself. It's just, it's just a word we use to designate that phenomena. Self is just like river. Right? Self is a designation for this changing process of mind-body elements. Self is a designation for the all, right? which is in constant change, constant flow, just like the water that we call a river, right? In understanding non-self, it doesn't mean that something is there that that suddenly disappears. <laughs> you know, and sometimes people, I think, have that that feeling. Oh my God! If I really understand no self, you know, what's going to happen? I'll disappear in a puff of smoke or something. 
<laughs> and it's, of course, it's not that at all. It's simply understanding that the word self does not refer to anything substantial in and of itself. It's just a designation for the flow of changing elements. Okay, so once we understand that, then the I am, do you know in a, in a river, do you know what an eddy is? You know, the water's flowing downstream and then it kind of hits some obstacle and part of the water flows back and it can kind of go around and around and around. So if one is canoeing or rafting or something and you get caught in an eddy, <laughs> you just go around and around until something gets you out of it and you're, you're back in the stream, right? So the I am, the I am is the conceit, is like an eddy in the stream, in the flow of our experience. We're going along, going along, and then the mind of just the flow of that, or the <laughs> mixing metaphors here, the flow of the river or the six-piece chamber orchestra just playing the music, you know, it's going along fine. But then we get caught up in some mental fabrication. And we get caught either in that comparing mind or lost in past, lost in future, or revolving around something that actually isn't there, revolving around this mental creation of I am or self, which, as I just said, is really just a designation for the flow. Okay, so then I do remember your question. <laughs> okay, so if we're, not, if we're not caught in this papancha, you know, of mine or I am or view of self, how do we actually navigate being this river <laughs> of changing a flow? How do we navigate in a way that's skillful? And of course, all of the Buddhist teachings are really about that. <laughs> He's offering us ways of living in this flow of impermanence, of constant change and movement, but in a way that brings about harmony, a way that brings about peace, which is really just another way of saying, how can we live in harmony with the nature of things, with nature? And so... Here's where another aspect of the teachings comes in, which is really important. I mean, this is, this is fundamental. That our actions, whether it's physical actions, you know, of our body or in speech or actions of our mind, that all our actions have consequences. So they're not happening in isolation. You know, they could say that there are ripple effects from everything we do. And the Buddha just pointed out what kinds of actions bring about suffering to ourselves and others and what kinds of actions bring about peace for ourselves and others. So once we learn that, then that's the blueprint or the template for living in the world, not needing this sense of I amness, the solidification or contraction in order to live effectively and happily. And in fact, the freer we are from that contraction, the happier we will be.
How can I be held responsible for the consequences of my action if I don't exist? <laughs> you think you're going to stun me, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so, right, we could get into a whole little, a whole little thing here, Dan. But just in the very way you ask the question, forgive me for saying this, but reflects the delusion <laughs> of the question. <laughs> because how can I take responsibility for my actions if I don't exist? So in the very first part of the question, you're already positing the I. <laughs> so if it really didn't exist, you wouldn't be positing it in the first place. But that having been said, I just had to... <laughs> Just had to play with you a little bit. <laughs> it's much more a question. The consequences of one's actions, is, it's, that's simply a conventional way of saying that the flow of our lives, the unfolding of our lives, the flow, is happening lawfully. And so the present will condition in one way or another what happens in the future. The sense of I is not at all necessary to understand that actions have consequences. If there's the understanding that a certain action, and this is using the Buddhist teachings, for example, if it's based in greed or it's based in hatred, that the result of that action is going to be some kind of suffering down the road, either immediately, you know, which we feel, or perhaps not, but down the road, it will be a seed for future suffering. So that's all. There's no I, no sense of self needed to understand that cause and effect relationship. And so if there's the desire for greater peace or happiness rather than a desire for suffering, we should pay attention to the causes behind those different results. And none of that has to do with an eye or a self. It's just the law of nature. You plant an, an apple seed, you're not going to get a pear tree. <laughs> so what kind of seeds are we planting? What kinds of seeds are being planted? We don't need the I in there at all. And we're going to get to that, the use of the passive voice, because you've got a very, what I found to be very powerful practice built around that. Just staying on this question of not self, one framing that's helped me, I think, understand this, or begin to understand this, is... Um, talking about things on a relative level this is these are terms of art here a relative level and an ultimate level can you explain those terms of art and and do you think i'm on to something here in terms of this being a way that we can kind of grapple with the notion that we are more gerundial than noun <laughs> that's good then <laughs> i've never been called a gerund before <laughs> So, yeah, th this understanding of 
In some schools of Buddhism, it's called the two levels of truth, relative truth and more ultimate truth. Another word that I like to use instead of relative is just conventional. Conventional truth, and we could say more ultimate truth. So on the conventional level, we use the term self and I and you, and you know, there's just this very ordinary way of understanding things. And for the purpose of communication, that's totally appropriate. You know, so I'm not at all suggesting that as we begin to explore for ourselves and maybe even have some experience of what non-self means, we don't give up conventional language. You know, it'd be very awkward to say, oh, this process of the mental physical elements is feeling hunger. <laughs> you know, I'm hungry. That's what, you know. So it's to understand that it's totally fine and appropriate to use conventional language. The problem is that for most of us, or most of the time, we are seduced by that language into believing that that is the more ultimate reality. Language is really important in terms of conditioning how we experience things. And it's, it's very, very common, as I just said, to, to be seduced by the conventional language of I and mine into believing that that has some substantial reality as opposed to being just a convenience of communication. Let me give you an example of how understanding the papancha of conceit, of understanding that and how it's working and recognizing it, can free the mind from a lot of unnecessary suffering. So this just happened to me on a recent retreat. So it's very fresh in my mind. So I was on a self-retreat at home and doing a fair amount of sitting and walking, but not super intensively. I would be doing quite a lot, but at other times I would be doing a little reading or perhaps some writing projects. But on one afternoon, I just found myself frittering away some time. <laughs> I don't even know what I was doing now, but I... I wasn't doing anything very mindfully or constructively. And so when I recognized this, I began to get down on myself a little bit. You know, a little self-judgment came in. You know, here you're on retreat and you're this Buddhist meditation teacher. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing just <laughs> frittering away this time? I was definitely feeling uh, some kind of just suffering involved in that self-judgment. You know, and for that short period of time, not feeling great about myself. <laughs> and so I saw myself caught in this. But I'm, you know, familiar enough with all these teachings that at a certain point, for me at that time, it didn't take that long. I was, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes of wallowing in the, in the self-judgment. But then as often happens when I'm suffering a lot, it piques my interest. You know, I said, What's going on here? Well, you know, why is my mind in this place of suffering? And I realized that it was just a situation of I aming. You know, I'm so bad because I just wasted all this time. I, I, I. 
As soon as I recognized the mindset of conceit, now that particular defilement of mind, rather than focusing on the story of, oh, you know, spent all this time, it was really a waste, which created that bad feeling. As soon as I recognized, oh, this is just conceited work. I'm just a lot of I aming. Immediately in the recognition of that, the whole mindset just let go. I was back in the present moment because I was recognizing the basic element that was causing the suffering. It wasn't the fact of frittering the time. (laughs) That was just what it was. And it was, (laughs) and obviously it wasn't some great sin, (laughs) but still it was enough to create that feeling in myself. But as soon as I let go of the self story, the I am story through recognizing that, oh yeah, this is just conceit working. This is just this particular papancha. The whole thing released. And so there's a very practical application of this. Everything we're talking about is not just about Buddhist theory or Buddhist philosophy. (laughs) It's really about understanding how suffering is created in our lives and how we can be free on a very precise level in terms of understanding how our mind is working. Well, that leads us nicely to these practices that you've laid out that can help us get little tastes of uh, the freedom you're talking about. I believe you've got three practices, at least from what I've heard in your recent public utterances on this subject, three practices that help us deal with the three proliferating factors of craving, conceit, and wrong view. And the first of these practices you already kind of referenced, which is the is kind of using our language to kind of reverse engineer an insight into our molecules. And the the linguistic change you're suggesting is the passive voice. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Just a little sidebar here. I just finished listening to a really interesting book called The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. And it was all about the fairly recent discoveries of what's called CRISPR, which is basically a tool for gene editing, you know, and actually editing DNA which has tremendous implications for perhaps curing or preventing disease. And to be able to get in on, just as you said, on that cellular level, you know, and edit something that creates problems is now happening in biology. So I liked your, (laughs) this is a kind of gene editing, (laughs) you know, we're we're getting in there to see, okay, what's in the DNA of our understanding? Mm. And can we edit out those genes that create suffering? (laughs) So one way of editing, uh, one little practice we can do, which could give a sense of that, is an application of a linguistic framework of how we are describing the world to ourselves in language. Now, mostly we use language in the active voice. There's a subject, you know, a verb, an object. So I'm walking to town, I'm eating some food or, you know, 
just the very simple, basic grammatical construction of active voice, a subject performing an action. The passive voice does something very interesting, and that is the passive voice takes the subject out of it. So just as an example, in the active voice, we might say, I'm hearing a sound. I am. <laughs> right there. Right there. We've built in the I amness. We've built in the sense of self. Just in our language, in our ordinary conventional language. To begin to play in the passive voice, we would say, a sound is being heard or a sound is being known. And so the passive voice takes the subject, I, out of the equation. And I have found this to be an extremely valuable frame for meditation for a whole variety of reasons. One is it puts us more in alignment with the actual state of affairs, right? We're not positing a designation, a conventional designation to be an essential element of the experience, which is what we're usually doing just in our ordinary use of language. So when we use the passive voice in framing our meditative experience and then all of our experience, you know, oh, things are being known. It's a way of really touching into the effortless nature of meditation. You know, if there's an I that is trying to do something, <laughs> so then there's an efforting involved for that I, you know, and especially at the beginning of people's practice, but even later on as well, that efforting quality, which is different than arousing energy, that, that's, that's a different thing. I'm talking about a an unskillful efforting or forcing or expecting, all those are rooted in the I. As soon as we drop into the passive voice of things being known, we can really settle back. We've taken the I out of it. And new experiences are arising by themselves in each moment. There's no one there doing anything. There's not an I there. The all, you know, those six things are just arising one after another, a sight, a sound, a smell. And so a very simple meditative exercise, which I think would give people a, a real immediate sense of what this means, is just to spend five minutes, 10 minutes, not a long time, just short period of time, either in sitting or in going for a walk, this could be done in, in any time, holding the question, just holding the, the frame of the question, moment after moment, what's being known? And then settling back and just recognizing what is being known moment after moment. Oh, a sight, a sound, a sensation, a thought, a sound, sensation, thought, sound. <laughs> So it's all happening by itself. It's all just flowing along by itself. And things are being known, if we have set that intention, to pay attention in this way. We set that frame, 
what's being known, and then settle back and see how effortless it is. And it also really highlights the impermanent nature. Because when we're settled back in that way and just aware of what's being known moment after moment, without an attempt to control it in any way, uh, or even to direct it, it's immediately obvious how things are just appearing and disappearing moment after moment. I don't know how much weight this will carry, but just to give it some an endorsement here, but I uh, struggled so much in the early stages of my practice and to this day with over-efforting and the intensity and duration of those struggles has been really reduced by using the passive voice. What is being known? Just asking myself that question and watch what happens. And it's not, I am trying so hard to be all over my breath like a rabid dog. It's more like the I'm feeling the breath and the, the, the breath is being felt and uh, there's nothing for me to do. It's already happening. And yes, maybe distraction comes up, but I see that and then uh, you can go back to things being known on their own. It's incredibly helpful. And I know we've got a couple of other um, techniques to help us with the papancha factors. And I, I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about those. Much more of my conversation with Joseph Goldstein right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Okay, the process known as Dan is back. <laughs> Before we go on, something occurred to me in the break that I, I thought might be helpful to mention. When people are both first beginning the practice, but also sometimes well into the practice, it can sometimes feel a little discouraging as we watch our minds to see you know, what in the Buddhist terminology are called the defilements or kind of those unskillful patterns of mind that just cause suffering, you know, in one way or another for ourselves or others. And 
I remember when I first began practice in India and I was seeing my mind, you know, with greater clarity than I had seen before I started meditating. And I saw all these unskillful patterns, you know, of different manifestations of desire or wanting or greed or aversion, you know, or annoyance or whatever, whatever it may be. And I remember writing to my teacher, Manindraji, I don't think I expressed it this way, but basically the sense was, I'm such a terrible person. I'm, you know, <laughs> look at all these terrible things that are arising in my mind. Uh, and so it can lead to a lot of self-judgment or discouragement, you know, about the practice. <laughs> Why do I want to sit and see all this stuff? Well, something really interesting happens uh, and it can happen either quicker or slower, depending how quickly one understands this. But we can get to a place in the practice where we're actually delighted to see all this stuff because we would rather see it than not see it. So, for example, now, when I see a manifestation of conceit, of I aming one way or another, I am delighted. It's like, ah, I see you. I caught you. <laughs> you know, you're not going to seduce me anymore. So it's actually uplifting and encouraging and joyful, you know, to be seeing the workings of our mind with clarity and with mindfulness. I just wanted to put out to the listeners that even though we may be seeing things which, you know, are, cause, are problematic in one way or another, but the very seeing of them is enlightening. And it's a way that we get lighter and lighter and lighter. Because as we see them, we are not so caught by them. If we don't see them, then they just run riot in our lives. I've heard you mention this before, and, and I've seen it play out in my own mind, and I really agree. It just got me thinking again, just to get back to these challenging questions I was asking you before about the idea of the illusion of the self or the not-self doctrine in Buddhism, that, that are there no aspects of the self that are useful? In other words, what if you catch the thought of, I, Joseph, am going to reach out to a friend who's suffering? I, Joseph, am going to write a book that might help a lot of people. I, Joseph, am going to write a Dharma talk that might teach people important concepts that they could use to improve their own life. Is there no mana that is good mana? <laughs> this goes back to uh, something we were talking about earlier. Using that language conventionally is completely fine. That, that's how we communicate. And, you know, I could very well say and have said many times, oh, oh, I have this project I'm really excited about. I really want to get involved in it. All of that's fine. You know, to use that kind of language just for ease of communication, because this is how things are conventionally understood. No problem at all. You know, we do do that. It's just to understand that even as we're using that language, we don't want to be caught by it or seduced in the belief or in our minds construct a substantial reality to what is in itself just a designation 
for part of the process. So the designation is helpful and we use it. But what happens is we take the word, <laughs> we take the concept, the designation to be the reality itself instead of seeing, oh, yeah, this is just a shorthand way of saying an idea arose in the mind, energy came to act on it, you know, and we, we could describe the same thing without the use of that language, but it's just very awkward, right? So the use of the language is fine, the I am language, but we want to understand that it's just conventional. It doesn't really refer to anything in and of itself. But mostly people don't make that second step. Mostly we're lost in the world of concept and convention. And we haven't really understood the building blocks of experience. So it would be, for example, in science, like just as we look at the physical world, take any simple physical object like a glass or anything, you know, so conventionally, we think a glass exists. And for a lot of practical purposes, there's no problem with that. You know, we use a glass. We... But if scientists got caught by that, they would never have been motivated to look, okay, well, what is it that we're actually calling glass, right? And developing the tools to investigate that question what is it that we mean by these designations? And then whole new worlds open up. Imagine the excitement of the first person to look through a microscope. And then nowadays, of course, it's even incredibly more sophisticated than that. Whole new dimensions of reality open up when we're not imprisoned by our attachment to the concept glass even though on a conventional level, it's a useful designation. So it's the same thing, you know, so we use it, but we don't want to be limited by that concept. And this is really what the Buddhist teaching is all about. It's, okay, what's, what's underneath it all? What are the basic elements of experience and how do they function? You use the word elements right there. We're in the middle of going through three little pieces of Joseph homework that we can all do to get under the hood here to go beyond these kind of limits that are pretty deep in our wiring, in our DNA, these papancha factors. And so there's one of the practices is built around a Buddhist concept of the elements. Tell us about that. Okay. <laughs> so each of these topics could be hour-long talks, so I'm going to try to kind of abbreviate it all. First, just need a little uh, explanation of, of the Buddhist framework for understanding the elements, because when we think of physical elements, we might think of our chemistry class, you know, in the periodic table of the different elements. The Buddha, in that time, whether he actually knew all of that or not, of course, I don't know, but in those times, they used a very simple framework for describing the elements. So it's just a different designation for the physical elements. And it, it was you know, fairly common in ancient times to think of the elements in terms of earth, air, fire, water. Right? That's how they would describe the elements. 
Now, obviously, there are certain limitations in that in terms of the understanding of chemistry, <laughs> but they are very practical in terms of having a simple designation for how we experience different physical phenomena. So, for example, the Earth element is a designation for just the experience the sensation of hardness, hardness or softness. So that's an immediate felt experience, which we all have. So the Buddha just designated that as, oh, that's the earth element. Or movement right, would be the air element. Or warmth or coolness would be the fire element. So that's what the terms earth, air, fire, water refer to. right? And they're helpful because it's just a very simple shorthand for describing our physical experience free of popancha, <laughs> of desire and craving and conceit and wrong view. So this is the way that I was playing with it on retreat, and it was really quite amazing to me. And again, it points to the power of language, whether it's spoken language or the language in our own minds, you know as we're describing or interpreting to ourselves what we're experiencing, the words we use are going to condition how we experience it. So again, this is something that normally we're not paying attention to. We think, oh yeah, we're experiencing the truth of what's there, <laughs> not realizing that whatever language we're using to describe it is affecting how we're experiencing it. Okay, so all of that is background. I was just outside, just doing walking meditation. And again, this was not at a very slow pace. It was just kind of a normal pace of walking, but it could be done at any speed. And as I said before, when I was describing the mind and belonging to me, you know, in walking, even though I was, I was being mindful and I was feeling the sensations of the movement in touch, I was noticing that, I would say, almost subliminal sense of I'm walking or my leg. It wasn't an explicit statement in my mind, but I could feel it was like a, a translucent veneer <laughs> on the experience. Hardly noticeable. But having just read this one particular discourse of the Buddha to his son, Rahula, in which he was describing this very practice as a way of counteracting the papancha of I, me, mine, he said, practice seeing the physical experience in terms of the elements. Okay, so I just read that. So in the walking, I just started, every time I would move, you know, move the leg, I was just very lightly, oh, air element. And then when I touched the ground, earth element. Just that, that's all, I just changed the language. But connecting those words to the experience, so it wasn't just kind of words going through my mind unrelated to the walking. It's like 
really connecting the words to the experience. It was amazing what happened. Just such a simple thing. Just simple change of language. Moving, oh, air element, earth element. It became so clear that the earth element or the air element didn't belong to me. <laughs> that the, the belonging to me, like my leg or my foot, completely fell away. It was just earth element. It was just air element. <laughs> doesn't belong to anybody. Right? And the whole sense of I am fell away. Even though we might say, you know, I'm walking, I am walking, would we ever say, I am the air element? <laughs> no. It's like, just the change of language removed that veneer of I, me, mine. And it dropped the whole experience into simply being the elements being known. That's all that was there. The I disappeared, the I am disappeared, the mind disappeared. And even if it's just for a few moments at a time, right? So I suggest, you know, if people are interested, they might try this and play with it. It doesn't have to be a big project. It can be, take five minutes or 10 minutes, you know, of walking and just play with this and see if any of what I've just said, you know, resonates with your own experience. But for me, it, it was so striking and so immediate to see how the application of the understanding of the elements was the antidote to I, me, mine. This might be just a good chance to give the background story to the Buddhist teaching to his son, in which he described exactly what I just said, you know, to use the elements. So they were going for alms round into a village, you know, to go collect food. And so the Buddha was walking ahead and Rahula, his son, was walking behind him. And Rahula was looking at the beautiful form of the Buddha, you know, who's said to embody physical perfection as well as perfection of heart and mind. And Rahula was kind of taking pride in the fact that he had a resemblance to the Buddha. You know, he was his son. And, of course, the Buddha, through his power of mind, knew what was in Rahula's mind. <laughs> so he stopped. He turned around to Rahula. <laughs> and that's when he gave this teaching. Everything should be seen with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. You know, so all the pride that Rahula was taking in his physical form, my body looks like this and isn't this beautiful, right? No, the Buddha is saying, see everything with perfect wisdom, not mine, not I, not myself. And then he went on to explain one way of accomplishing that is through this meditation on the elements. Because as I just said, when we do that, the I, me, mind just falls away. We're back just in the basic six elements of experience. That's all. It's just those six things being known moment after moment. So it's tremendously liberating and freeing. 
And even if we're not living in that space all the time, I think it's very powerful, even if we have brief moments of it, you know, because that's like planting the seeds in our ongoing flowing stream of a deeper understanding. And those seeds are really important because then we're not completely captured by the world of convention and concept. You know, we're kind of poking holes in that. And they're powerful. That really begins the process of liberation. In the time that remains here, let me prod you to describe the third exercise, which, if I recall, has to do with seeing how quickly everything that comes up in our mind passes away. We go through different stages in practice. And even at any stage, you know, that we may be at, of course, one of the fundamental insights is that things arise and pass away, right? Things come into being and vanish. So this is not difficult either to understand or to see. I think a good part of the time, our minds are focused on what's arising. You know, so each new arising experience captures our attention. Arising, arising, arising. But we could as well focus on the disappearing side of things, right? because they, of course they're doing both. But I think our minds have been very conditioned in general to always be captured by the newly arising object. But something very different happens when we start to focus on the disappearing aspect. Because when we're just focused on the arising aspect, that's very easy for us to get attached to, to have aversion to, to claim as being self. We, we do all kinds of things in relationship to seeing a new object arise. Something completely different happens when we're focusing on the disappearing. So how to do that in a way that's really vivid. So again, one time I was just out for a walk. That's an ordinary walk. You know, being as mindful as I could be. I was, you know, but I, I wasn't, it wasn't like a slow meditative walk. It was just an ordinary walk. And the thought came to my mind, well, what happened to the step of five minutes ago? It's gone. I mean, it's completely gone, you know, really gone. <laughs> there, was, there was nothing of it left. And then I said, well, what about one minute ago? Gone. What about 30 seconds ago? Gone. What about one second ago? It's gone. And so I just brought my mind up to the very lip of, of the flow of, it's like water over a waterfall, you know, gone, 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 gone. So I brought my mind right to that point of things just disappearing, 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 disappearing. And it was quite amazing. It's like being in that experience of things disappearing, it's impossible to hold on. <laughs> the thing is gone by the time we could even hold on to it, right? And so the mind has let go of any kind of grasping or attachment or even wanting 
right? Because things are just continually disappearing. And so we get into a kind of free flow, just a free flow of experience without getting caught up in any of the eddies that I mentioned, you know, of getting caught in some kind of attachment or reaction to the present moment experience and then circling around that and then building up all the papancha about it. No, it's just gone, 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 gone. And the, the felt experience of that is so liberating. And interestingly enough, and I, this I don't really quite understand yet, it's somehow being in that space activated what in the Buddhist terminology is called the heart center. You know, this, there are different energy centers in the body, you know, and each one has its own kind of manifestation. So I think we all have a, just an intuitive sense of what the heart center means, you know, the, the felt sense of an open heart. Interestingly enough, that's what was activated when I was just in that place of the continual disappearing, falling away, falling away, with its consequent lack of any clinging to anything. You know, so I think all of that contributed to that feeling of the heart space of it. You know, it was a very free space, even though in just hearing the words, it might feel, I don't know, if people hear just, oh, falling away, falling away, falling away, you know, there's no, there's no stability. It might feel a little frightful. That was not the experience of it at that time. There's one image that might be helpful also in understanding how we experience this greater awareness of things disappearing, of falling away. Because we can have different relationships to that, you know, or different felt experiences of that at different times. Somebody once told me of this example. It was of somebody free-falling out of a plane. So, you know, people do this kind of for, for sport. <laughs> but this is not in a sport situation. So just imagine somebody falling out of a plane one way or another. The circumstances are not really germane <laughs> to the example. And then perhaps there's the first experience of exhilaration. You know, just the, the exhilaration of free fall. So this is very much like the first experience of things arising and passing quickly. You know, as we continue in our meditation practice and it deepens at a certain point, the mind really goes from emphasizing the content of what's arising, you know, there's this, 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 to the process, meaning the process of change. And so instead of the emphasis being on the what, it really becomes an emphasis on the how it's happening. Things arising and passing, arising and passing. And that perception get very refined. So we see this process of change very quickly. So that's the sense of exhilaration. Then going back to the image of the free fall, then maybe the person realizes they don't have a parachute. <laughs> They're in this free fall and there's no parachute. And then they get really frightened, you know, maybe a little fear or even terror arises and they're falling, falling, you know, 
afraid of that. And so the equivalent of that in the meditative process would be after the exhilaration of seeing things arise and pass, you know, so quickly, and then the mind begins to focus on just the disappearing, the rapid disappearance of everything. So then there's the, the felt sense of there's just no security anyplace. There's nothing to hold on to. And so that can be a challenging time in meditation, you know, of going through that feeling of it. But then, again, going back to the example of the freefall, so first there's the exhilaration, then there's the fear, but then at a certain point, the person realizes there's no ground. And so then they relax into an equanimity that simply is enjoying the whole experience, you know, of fall, of change, of flow. So this is quite similar to what happens in meditation, because after that kind of disturbing period of time when we are highlighting the fact of the insecurity or there's nothing to hold on to or the continual disappearance, at a certain point, we realize there's no ground, which is another way of saying or analogous to the understanding of selflessness. This is just a natural process going on and we fall into a place of tremendous equanimity. And the equanimity is so profound and it's a very exquisite kind of happiness that comes. We really come to a place of peace. And at that point in practice, it said, even for those people you know, who are still on the path, but that place of equanimity is said to resemble the mind of a fully enlightened being. Right? It's just a being that's not holding on to anything and is resting in the peace of that, the peace of non-clinging, the peace of non-grasping at that which is continually changing. So in the exercise that I mentioned of just going for a walk and maybe for a short period of time, just staying at that disappearing edge of things, seeing things continually fall away, I think it's very unlikely that you'll be experiencing the unsettling aspect of seeing this process of change. My sense is that you'll really begin to understand the liberating aspect of it. This has been great. I really appreciate this. And, and I really love the three homework assignments because these are things all of us can do. So thank you, Joseph. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. I, as you know, I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> see you next time, Dan. <laughs> yes, I'll see you next time. I like that because that implies there will be a next time. I didn't do anything too bad this time. No, no, this is delightful. Thanks again to Joseph. Always love talking to him. As you can tell, I very deeply appreciate him coming back on the show. As a note of reference, the topics covered here today were covered in deeper detail within two Dharma talks that Joseph gave on a retreat, an online retreat. Those talks are linked within the show notes and are accessible via the IMS website. Highly recommend you check those out. And if you're interested in learning directly from Joseph, he is co-leading another online retreat via Spirit Rock Meditation Retreat Center. And that's coming up this very weekend. Registration closes tomorrow, July 15th. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. 
The show is made by Samuel Johns, DJ Kashmir, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant. We get our audio engineering from the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio. And in closing, and as always, a big shout out to my ABC News colleagues, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.